Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Father, I thank you for your word today. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word endures forever. And that's what we want to open up now, and that's what I want you to speak through me now this morning, to speak of the glories that Jesus is alive, that he has been raised victorious over the grave and over sin and over hell. We thank you for it. Father, I pray your spirit would be here powerfully, speaking, ministering, working, that we would have a living hope when we leave here today. A living hope. In Jesus' name, amen. The resurrection is the most important event in human history. If Jesus was not raised, then in a sense, all hope is lost. Not in a sense, in every sense, all hope is lost. If Jesus was not raised from the dead. Jesus made incredible promises uh, in all of the Gospels. When he spoke, we'd be best for us if we listened to what he said. But if he wasn't raised from the dead, then we don't have to listen to anything he said. Right? Tim Keller said, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then don't worry about a single thing that he said. But if he was then you need to listen to everything he says and believe it and obey it. One historian quaintly put it this way, if Christ is not raised, nothing else matters. But if Christ is raised, I shouldn't say but, if Christ is raised, nothing else matters. Okay, if he's not raised, nothing matters. If he is raised, Nothing else matters. Is this an overstatement? When I say if Christ is not raised, it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. And if he is raised, nothing else matters. Is that an overstatement? I don't think so. Just looking at a sampling of what the Bible says about Christ's resurrection, and even what Jesus himself said. Jesus said this in John 10. I, I love this part of John 10, when Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of of my own accord. I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Now, if somebody says that and you hear them say that, and then you see them die and then you see them rise again, you're like, okay, this guy means business. Consider Matthew 28, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, He came to his disciples and said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. That means all authority. Okay, All of it has been given, Jesus said, to me. He said, all of it's been given to me. That's big. We better listen to what he has to say. John 11, 25 through 26, if you've been to a funeral, and the Bible's been opened, and words from the Bible have been spoken. You probably have heard these words before. Jesus said, I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's big. Not just anybody can say words like that. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, verse 17, says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. One of the sweetest implications of the resurrection, and one that I think either is strengthened by or flows from what I just said in Matthew 28, John 11, and 1 Corinthians 15, Uh, is in our text this morning and is the main point of this morning. And it's this. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me say that again. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I would say we have no hope apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The word hope has fallen on hard times in our day. We often use the word in a way that the writers, biblical writers, would find very foreign. We say things like this. I hope I have a better year this year than last year. I hope I get that job that I'm applying for. I hope that Iowa State makes it to the final four. Things like that. And even when we come to the Bible, oftentimes hope is seen as something that is out there in the upper stratosphere of some spiritual land somewhere. But Peter uses a powerful adjective to describe this hope, and it's this. It's a living hope. It's a living hope. This is an amazing word to describe hope, the hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not merely a hope for when we die, though it certainly is that, right? We want to have hope when we are about to breathe our last breath, for sure. And it is that, but it's so much more. It is anything but a dead hope, like what James calls a dead faith in James 2. James says, what good is it if you have faith But it's a dead faith that doesn't show it anything by its works, right? It's not like that, right? It's hope that empowers us to live. It's a living hope. I love Romans 15 verse 13, which says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Isn't that the kind of hope we want? Not a hope that's out there, but a hope that like fills us with life. Fills, fills us with joy and peace. Fills us to live our lives in a way that shows we have a hope. Of course, that's what Peter says later on in 1 Peter in chapter 3. He says, um, be ready always to give an account of the hope that you have. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we don't have hope apart from that. But how? How does this hope enter into our experience? How does it go from being out there 
right? How does it go from being out in outer space somewhere that sounds like a great idea? And even some here today may have maybe thinking in your mind, you know, the, the, the eyes of your heart are kind of rolling and saying, I tried this whole thing before. How does it go from being out there or just intellectual knowledge about some things to coming in here deep into our souls? I mean, you read the, these verses in 1 Peter 1. I mean, P- Peter is, I mean, he is emotional about what he's talking about. He is intensely emotional about what he's saying here. How does it go from being out there to coming and embedding itself in our hearts and filling us to overflowing? Well, four things from this passage. First, God's mercy comes to us. God's mercy comes to us. Second, God's power guards us for a perfect future. Third, seeing God's purpose in trials. And fourth, the real, personal, present, living Christ becoming real to us. So first, let's take those one at a time. First, how, how, does this, how does this living faith go from out there to plant, being planted in our souls? First, God's mercy comes to us. We see this in verse 3. Verse 3 says this, According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again. The phrase born again is in verse 3 has been, is, is used in two places in the Bible, in 1 Peter 1 and in John chapter 3. From, if you remember in John 3, Jesus is speaking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, I know that you are a teacher sent from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And from Nicodemus' response, we realize all of a sudden, either Nicodemus isn't getting something, or maybe we're not getting something, because his response is amazing. Nicodemus shows us that this is something out of the ordinary, to be born again. Nicodemus responds by saying, how can this be? How can a man enter into his mother's womb again? A grown man like me, how can I go back into my mother's womb? And only those of us who have been in church culture for a long time, or for some time at least, and are used to these words, we lose the strangeness of them. To be born again is a strange thing. Not strange negatively, but just a strange and foreign thing. It's outside of our normal daily experience, right? To be born again. Nicodemus' question is a legitimate question. How can one be born again? He understands just how improbable this is. But here in our text, 1 Peter 1, Peter shows us how this happens. Let's read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this phrase. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. 
It's according to God's great mercy. It's his great mercy. Not just mercy, which would be great, but it's his great mercy. It's according to his great mercy that we are born again. And it is God who causes us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, if you believe in Jesus Christ, God caused you to be born again. God did a miracle in your life. God takes people who are not yet born of the Spirit and causes them to be born of the Spirit. If you would say here today, I trust in Jesus. I know he died on the cross for my sins. I know that he rose again. There was something much more than just a little decision you made long ago or last week or two years ago. God, miraculously, in his great mercy, came to you and caused you to be born again. In verse 23 of this same chapter here in 1 Peter 1, we see something else that helps us understand the way God causes people to be born again. Verse 23 says this, Since you have been born again, same phrase, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. So it's not as though God just kind of sprinkles some born-again dust upon us and we just become born again. But it's through hearing the Word of God. It's through reading the Word of God. It's through, some of you were gathered in a service much like this, or you were speaking with a friend and they were sharing the gospel with you, or you had your Bible opened and things were hitting you like it hadn't before, and God was making you alive through his living and abiding word. If you have been born again, God caused you to be awakened as you heard the gospel preached or read your Bible or were speaking with a friend and they were telling you about Jesus Christ who died on a cross and was raised again. And if you have not been born again, I pray, I've been praying and I am praying right now that this morning, this amazing miracle would happen to you. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us another, another picture of what it means to be born again, except it uses this death and life metaphor, or this death and life picture. Paul says this, You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which, in which you once walked. In other words, we were, we were going our own way. We were living in sin. The picture is so The imagery is so powerful. We were dead in our sins. And he says, But God made us alive together with Christ. What does it mean to be born again? It means to be spiritually brought from death to life. And if that's happened to you, do you know that? Do you know know that God has raised you from the dead? And if, and if he's raised you from the dead, is that something that causes us to yawn? There is no ordinary resurrection. All of it's extraordinary. All of it's miraculous. All of it is amazing. 
All of it is a powerful work of God according to his mercy where he causes us to be born again. Gives us a new heart. Takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. Puts his spirit inside of us. Causes us to become a brand new creation. Kids, kids that are in here this morning, when you see a Lego or dollhouse, we got, we got Lego maniacs in our home, so that's what's on my mind, I guess. Uh, you automatically assume someone built that. Someone made that, right? When you think of what it means to be a Christian, you think about mommy being a Christian and daddy being a Christian or you being a Christian or grandpa and grandma or friends being a Christian, I want you to remember this, that according to God's great mercy, he caused mom or dad or you to be born again. God did that. God put within them brand new life. God put within you brand new life. So how does this living hope come to us? Well, God comes in mercy to us and causes us to be born again. Here's another way that this living hope comes into our experience. God's power guards us for a perfect future. Verses four and five says this. We've been, let me back up just a bit in verse three. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When Peter uses the word inheritance and then this word final salvation or salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, I think he's talking about the same thing. And this salvation or this inheritance that is, that is waiting for us, to ready, be, ready to be revealed, is being kept for us, kept for Christians, and Christians are being guarded for it. Look again at verse 4 and notice the adjectives that are, that are used to describe this inheritance that is being kept for us. It is unlike anything in our daily experience. It says this inheritance is imperishable. Imperishable means it will never perish. It is not subject to decay at all. It is undefiled. To be undefiled means it's uncorrupted and unpolluted by sin. Everything in our world is corrupted and polluted by sin. Everything. Even the best things. This inheritance, uncorrupted. Undefiled. And it's unfading. It will never, ever fade into the twilight. Ever. Imagine something you enjoy doing. Maybe if you had like an hour to do something or two hours, what would you do? Got that thing in your mind? Okay. Now, if you had that thing to do, and that's all you could do for a year straight, 
the enjoyment of it would fade after about two months, maybe two weeks, maybe three days, I don't know. I mean, the most precious things, if that's all you did, it would fade. My wife, I love my wife, and I think she is amazingly beautiful, her heart and physically beautiful. If she lived to be 100 years old, Lord willing, she will, some of her physical beauty would fade. Some. This inheritance that belongs to us will never fade away. Verse 5 says, Christians are by God's power guarded for this inheritance. The word guarded can mean one of two things. It can mean either to guard from an attack. So think of like soldiers guarding people from an attack. Or it can mean to guard people from escaping. And I think in our context, you can certainly make a case for both. Parents and kids, think of this, okay? Especially when your kids were young, you parents guarded them in two ways. You guarded them from someone coming and taking them. Or from them being stuck out in a tornado or a thunderstorm or from a dog coming and attacking them, right? You guarded them from. But you also, or you guarded, you guarded them from an attack, right? But you also guarded them from leaving when they're young, right? Kids like to run away. They like to run in the street. They like to do what you tell them not to do. And so you don't leave a one-year-old who just learned to walk outside all by themselves. I mean, you might accidentally do this, but you wouldn't knowingly do this for an hour because they would probably be gone. So you guard them from an attack and you guard them from escape. I was driving through my neighborhood the other day and I, and, and I saw in the backyard... And, and this kid had a long ways to go before he got to the street. And he wasn't moving very fast. And his mom was moving fast. But he had run off the deck and was running toward the street. And his mother, she had a smile on her face, so she knew it was okay. And he had a smile on his face, running toward him. Get back here. Right? That's what parents do. That's what we do. And that's what God does. This inheritance is guarded for us by God's power. Meaning, he guards us from being snatched away by the devil or by ourselves or whatever. And he guards us from escaping. I said, be escaping ourselves. How does God guard us? Well, we are guarded by God's power. And we're guarded by God's power, this little phrase, through faith. Which I take to mean that God's mighty power is at work in us. Guarding us from unbelief and keeping us believing all the way to the end. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, but it is a gift from God. Not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Question I have for you. If you would say, I'm a Christian, I believe today, I believe, I believe in Christ. How do you know you will wake up a believer tomorrow or next year or five years from now or when you're about to breathe your last breath? How do you know that you're going to be a believer then? 
And if you say, well, I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to believe and I'm going to tell myself the promises of God and I'm going to fight and I'm going to fight and I'm just going to believe and I'm going to hold fast all the way to the end. That is a pretty fragile foundation to stand on. How do you know you're going to be a believer? I'm not saying that we should walk, always be questioning, am I going to believe tomorrow? But where's your confidence lie? I want you to leave this morning saying, and even better, knowing deep within, God, by his almighty power, will keep me believing to the very end. Jesus said this in John 10. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And I lay my life down for them. And later on he says, and I have them in my hand and no one can snatch them out. Author J.I. Packer said this in his book, Knowing God. He said, I need not torment myself and you need not either with the fear that my faith may fail. As grace led me to faith in the first place, so grace will keep me believing all the way to the end. Faith, both in its origin and continuance, is a gift of grace. Or listen to what Philip Doddridge, a pastor from England in the 1700s, beautifully said. I love this poem. He says, Grace first inscribed my name in God's eternal book. Twas grace that gave me to the Lamb who all my sorrows took. Grace taught my soul to pray and pardoning love to know was grace that kept me to this day and will not let me go. How does this hope enter into our experience? By knowing a God who has almighty power that he is exerting in your direction and will keep you and guard you for a perfect future. How does this living hope come into our experience? Here's another way. By seeing God's purpose in our trials. By seeing God's purpose in our trials. Verse 6 says that Christians will go through various trials. The phrase various trials is a very vague phrase, okay? It just communicates trials of all kinds. All kinds of trials. All shapes of trials. All different sizes of trials. Big and small. Emotional and spiritual. Physical and mental. Financial. All kinds of trials. Various trials. It would be similar to saying something like this. That family is going through lots of hard things. If I, if I were to say that, it, it would just denote that they're going through all kinds of hard things. Peter says Christians will go through various trials. And we need to know for our hope that God has purpose in every single trial you go through. Now, the Bible does not force us to choose either to pray for deliverance and help or to trust God has a purpose in our trial. It's not either or, it is both and. 
Right? We, we come to God, we say, help me in this, deliver me from this, but we also come to a God who could at any moment, and sometimes he doesn't, so we know that he is working things together for our good and his glory. In our text this morning, it teaches us to trust God has purpose in the various trials and challenges that we face. That's what this passage, I think, teaches us. And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see from this passage. So let's, let's look at verses 6 and 7. And I want you to look at this with me and see, is this what God is saying here? Who cares what I think? Who cares if these are just Josh's thoughts? But if, these, if this is what God is saying in his word, then let's humble ourselves and receive and be filled with hope in light of. Verses 6 and 7 says this, In this, and I think he's talking about in this inheritance we just talked about, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where am I getting this idea that God has a purpose? And I say purpose very deliberately. It's not just that God can somehow use hard things, but that he has purpose in hard things, in trials. Where am I getting this from? I'm getting it from two phrases. The phrase, if necessary, in verse 6. And the phrase, so that, in verse 7. Let's look at those quickly. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Who would see trials as necessary on their own volition? I wouldn't. I never would. I would never see trials as necessary. Because I want them gone. I want them gone instantly. I want them gone yesterday. Almost nobody here, probably nobody here, would choose that. Would say, God, is there no other way? But apparently God considers trials necessary. And Peter points to this later in his letter in 1 Peter. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.19 says this, Let those who suffer trials, right? Trials according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator. But why? Why would God ever see trials and suffering as necessary? And the words, so that, help us here. So let's take a look at that. Verse 7 we see this. Verse 7 says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, So that the tested genuineness, so that means that there's purpose in this. What is the purpose God is after? 
The purpose is for the beautifying and and purifying of your faith and my faith. So God's purpose in this is so that the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's purpose is that through testing, our faith may may be proven genuine and result in praise and glory and honor when we meet when we meet Christ face to face imagine if this was not part of god's program for our lives imagine if god's main purpose for you and i was simply comfort ease your best life now and fun apparently our faith would be unproven and frail And so God sees it as necessary to allow and bring us through trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith. Do Do you consider your faith more precious than gold? Than all the gold in the world? I wonder. Our faith is more precious than a life of ease and comfort and fun. I like fun. I enjoy comforts. Our faith is more precious than gold and God means to make it beautiful through trials. You know how gold is purified, don't you? It's put over very intense heat so that impurities can rise to the top and be scraped off. And more impurities can be, can ri- will rise to the top and be scraped off. Now, I realize that we're not playing games here because I know that there are people here, all of us go through trials, but I realize there are some people here who are suffering great trials right now, and you have suffered great trials. And all of us, if we live long enough, will at some point suffer, go through trials. God does not like pain, yours or mine, for its own sake. But we need to know that God could prevent or take it away at any time. And he does miraculously at, some, at times, right? We pray for it and we see people healed and delivered and set free. And we say, amen to that. But oftentimes God governs these painful trials for a higher purpose. One thing that Christians can be absolutely certain of is that the banner over every painful trial that has ever grieved you and ever will grieve you is this. The devil meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You guys know where that's from? The story of Joseph, right? Joseph was a guy who went through horrible things for a long time. And after all of them, he was able to say these words. In your present trial, you need to know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And all authority belongs to him. In heaven and on earth. And nothing, nothing, not one thing can separate you from his love. And he will never, ever leave you. And he'll never forsake you. He'll be with you to the very end. 
and no one can snatch you out of his hand. That he sits enthroned now in heaven, working to subdue every single enemy of his and of yours. And he is working through this present trial to beautify you and your faith. To beautify you and your faith. I realize this does not neatly explain everything. But why this, Lord? But it will put a rock under your feet when all other ground is shifting sand. Or to use a different metaphor, it will put ballast in your boat for the winds of trials that you and I are sure to go through or are going through now. Finally, how does a hope, this living hope, come into our experience? It's through the living, personal, and present Christ becoming more real to us. Check out verses 8 and 9. I mean, you've got to realize this is all in the same context. You can't remove these things from each other. You can't separate these things from each other. Verse 8 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith. Would anyone here say, you know what, that just doesn't apply to me because I got too much joy as it is. I don't need that. I am good. I mean, I am the joy thing. I got that. I mean, it is inexpressible and full of glory. I want this. Peter's saying to the people he's writing to, he says, this is where you're at. And I'm saying, Lord, take me there. And maybe take us there if you would agree with me. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This inexpressible, that just means it cannot be fully expressed. It can't be explained. Wow. You may be asking, can this, though, be for me? Can it be for me? Because I know, unless, unless you're just like bursting on the inside, you might be thinking, I don't know if this is for me. Or, who cares? I hope you're not saying, who cares? Can this be for you? Can this be for me? Yes, of course it can. A thousand times, Yes. It is when Christ, though, is not merely an idea. He's not just an accessory for our lives. He, we don't tack him on. We don't say, Jesus, I really want you to really beautifully accessorize my life. But it is when he is the ultimate reality in our lives. When he is a treasure for us. When he is Savior and Lord, yes. But I would add another thing. When he is Savior, Lord, and treasure. When he is treasure for us, to us. Christ can be this for you. He offers himself to you, to all, to be joy and expressible and filled with glory. Many here would claim to believe in Christ 
many in the world certainly, and probably some here, would claim to believe in Christ, and I'm not doubting that, but don't find him to be much of a joy. In fact, some might, might have had this strange idea, which you would not get from the Bible, that Jesus is a killjoy. All he's doing is like that strict, legalistic parent saying, nope, not that, don't do that, hands off that, stop doing that, nope, get back here, nope, nope, nope. Joy, inexpressible, and filled with glory? That's not a killjoy. Jesus said in John 16, I say these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I love that. He doesn't just say your joy may be full. He says, first he says, my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. But Jesus will not be an add-on. He won't be. He won't be an accessory for your life, for the way that you want life to go. Just kind of tack Jesus onto that. But he will be exuberantly, passionately, with all of his heart, he will be your supreme treasure. Alyssa sang a song last week. I was just thinking about this. Actually, just kind of came to mind. Everything within me says, yes, Lord. And I, amen to that. We want to say yes to the Lord. <laughs> it just came to me. When we want Christ to be our supreme tre- treasure, everything in him says, yes. <laughs> everything in him says, yes, I'll be their treasure. I will be everything to them. I will fill them with joy and expressible and full of glory. Yes, trials. Right? Yes, difficulties, but in the midst of it, I will so fill them with my life and joy. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. And he's alive. So it's a living hope. He came, Jesus. He lived the life you and I could never live. He died the death we don't want to die. And he rose again. He offers himself to you as your hope. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ, this is the mystery hidden from ages past and now being revealed. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you have him? Do you have this living hope? Do you have Christ? I pray this morning that you would. I'm going to ask the worship to actually Luke and Alyssa to come up. They're going to lead us in a song this morning. And I would say this is a time to respond to Christ, to respond to God by singing to him, by declaring to God and to your own soul and to those around you what you think about Jesus and the hope that we have in Christ because he is alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Thank you that You offer yourself to each and every one of us as a living hope to all who will receive you. Your word says you give the right to become children of God, children full of hope. And so, Lord, I pray you would fill us with hope now. And I pray even as we sing this last song, there would be men and women and even kids responding to Jesus this morning. I pray this in his strong name.
Amen.